a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yep, this here is a gathering place for wrong thinkers of every size, shape, and description. Yeah, easy for me to say. If you're new to the show, I appreciate you checking us out. I'll see if I can uh, make it worth your while. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, also by Pure-Light.com, HSLAmmo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. There are links to each of these sponsors on my show notes page. Every time I publish an episode, there is uh, I, I have a corresponding page of show notes. And the reason I, I put these show notes up, it's uh, it's not just so I can tell you my uh, my website name, which is thebrianhideshow.com. Pretty catchy, right? Anyway, I put this up because I feel like if, if I'm sharing a story about a particular topic, you may want to know a little bit more about it. So I'll have links to the various commentators, links that... Sometimes their stories contain much uh, <clears throat> much more in-depth information, further links that you can follow. The idea isn't so much that I want to waste all your time chasing links and going after this aspect or that aspect of the story, but just with the understanding that you can learn some things from a quick read of a news story or scanning the headlines. A lot of people really prefer to just kind of take a superficial approach. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw an article on that. I guess you could say I've researched it pretty heavily. Sorry, it's it's a pet peeve of mine. I, there there are there are other hosts out there who really lean on this. Yes, I've researched this thoroughly. When they've googled like two or three articles, and boy, wow, what depth you're showing there! It's it's not a matter of you know who's the smartest in the room. It's a matter of have you really paid the price to know what you're talking about? Because on some of this stuff, it really matters. And it, what's curious is a lot of people have been trained or conditioned to. Defer to an expert. Well, you know, I don't really know anything about that, and I don't know that I could really learn anything about it. So we we tend to outsource our thinking to experts. And the bad news there is if you are in the habit of outsourcing your thinking to experts, you cannot expect to remain a free people. Now, Doug Casey, in a piece that was published earlier today on LewRockwell.com, has an excellent take on why people outsource their thinking to the experts. He's asked the question, thanks to the internet and modern technology, the average person can access information now on almost any topic with relative ease, but it seems people are doing less critical thinking than ever. Why do you think that's the case? And here's how Doug Casey answers it. He says, technology's a double-edged sword when it comes to critical thinking. He says it's paradoxical that something so associated with knowledge and research is often at odds with wisdom. And he says, I think that's partly because today's technology offers instant answers, no thought required. You can go to Google and an answer is at your fingertips. It doesn't require research or or thought. The answer just appears. And this subtly obviates the need for contemplation. So first he says, let's define what critical thinking is. Now, he says, I would say it's the process of questioning the validity of the assumptions and the accuracy of the data for everything. 
A critical thinker never assumes or takes anything for granted. Now, we can't always be sure what the quality of a Googled answer is, but most people assume it's honest and correct. However, considering the nature of the people who run Google, Wikipedia, and websites of that nature, Doug Casey says, I prefer to assume that the quality of many answers is low. In fact, the volume of data available through computer technology is so great that there's a tendency to confuse all that quantity with quality. Now, when the world and the data stream is moving very quickly, it seems you have less time to contemplate its meaning. You can get lost in it and lose perspective. He says, it reminds me of a scene out of the original Rollerball movie from the 1970s with James Caan. Books no longer exist. All knowledge is contained in an all-powerful computer. And the scientist in charge of the computer is talking to another character and says, yeah, for some reason we've lost the 13th century, and he kicks the machine. It's the only source of what used to be in millions of books. And Doug Casey says we're almost in a situation where everything comes from one source, basically Google, rather than researching books, getting answers from a dozen points of view, and then thinking critically about their meaning. Sure, Google gives you many references, but how many others have been canceled? How many have been con- how many considered politically incorrect are buried as deep as the 13th century in Rollerball? Now, then he's asked, Doug Casey is asked whether it's finance, economics, politics, and many other areas. Seems almost everywhere you look, people are looking to the so-called experts to tell them what they should think about a given topic. Where does this come from? How did most people come to trust the experts? And Doug Casey's answer is, as the amount and complexity of data grows, it's natural to want an expert to sort it out for you. But experts are known for knowing a lot about a little not for having broad, integrated knowledge. People understandably look to them to make decisions for them, and that's foolish. Better that you go to a philosopher than a technician when the time comes to decide on something important. But, he says, philosophers are in short supply today, so people listen to celebrities. Now, a celebrity is someone who's famous for being well-known. People automatically assume that famous people must know something that they don't, The public doesn't know much, but they know more about some celebrities than they do about their own friends, neighbors, and relatives. And that engenders trust. People trust a celebrity who endorses something he knows nothing about because they think they know him. It's another consequence of mass media. The average person is much more likely to accept Google's or Wikipedia's or some celebrity's opinion than to research something themselves. Critical thinking is hard work. Questioning authority doesn't usually make you any friends. He says, I see it in the newsletter business all the time. Someone who's glib and can present well can be transformed into an instant expert, even though he knows very little. As long as he's good at presenting and gaining people's confidence, we see that with the talking heads on TV as well. He says, they're really just actors who don't know anything, but they're good looking, well promoted and have a nice social veneer. So people trust them. It makes no sense, and neither does the public's obsession with credentials. Something like a third of Americans have a college degree, which today only means they've spent a lot of money to be indoctrinated over four years. It's no guarantee of expertise. Forget about wisdom or judgment. Over 13% of graduates have master's degrees or PhDs. That doesn't prove they're critical thinkers. In most cases, those degrees prove little, other than the recipients think it's a good idea to spend a lot of time and money for a credential. So he says credentials should be suspect. Critical thinkers don't assume that they're worth anything. 
They're often a camouflage for mediocrity. In today's world, their main value is to intimidate by making the public assume you know what you're talking about. They trust the credential the way they've come to trust Google or Wikipedia. Now, people are comforted to believe if they don't know the answer. Someone with a degree does, and they should be in charge. In fact, Doug Casey says, I suspect most higher degree holders think they should be in charge. And that's a bad tendency across the board. Now, from here, the questioning turns to the COVID hysteria and how it's accelerated this trend. And the questioner says, throughout the pandemic, many people believed that health experts, they believed the health experts robotically and even attacked those who brought forth logical information and data, which challenged the established narrative. What's your take? And Doug Casey says, well, the media and the establishment have selected a set of credentialed health experts, promoted them, and told the public they know what they're talking about. Take Anthony Fauci. He has lots of credentials, like everyone high up in the government agencies. Whether or not he was ever a competent scientist, you can be very sure he's a competent political operator, and apparently quite wealthy with positions in companies under his purview. In any event, though, he's a lifelong government employee, a professional bureaucrat, previously invisible, but now elevated from nowhere to near dictatorial control. Meanwhile, there are people that have written numerous peer-reviewed papers, done serious lab work, and are currently disagreeing with patients with boots on the ground, or dealing with patients with boots on the ground, rather, about whose views are canceled, rather, whose views are canceled because they disagree with Sar Fauci. See, the average person never hears about them, and when they do, they're canceled by the mass media. Perfect example of this is the use of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in countering the COVID virus. Apart from the supposed fact that the, the fact that the supposed pandemic itself is greatly overrated. Anyone who's vaccine hesitant, or God forbid, a COVID denier, is painted as anti-science, a conspiracy theorist. Doug Casey says, my view is that there are legitimate reasons not to take any experimental vaccine, especially when there's a possibility that the supposed cure is much more dangerous than the disease itself. We'll come back and we'll finish up here with Doug Casey's take on why people outsource their thinking to the experts. By the way, the answer isn't to go around and hate on the experts or to you know just dismiss them all out of hand. The answer is to learn how to think like an expert yourself. And yes, you can do it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Doug Casey. This was published earlier on LewRockwell.com about why people outsource their thinking to the experts. And man, we have seen this uh, almost become mandatory in the course of the, the pandemic over this last year and a half. It's been really crazy. And yet people think, I, but I'm, who am I? I don't know anything. I don't have a degree. Where I've, I lack credentials. How could I possibly make up my mind for myself about, for instance, whether or not to receive the vaccination? Now, see, I'm not going to tell you hard and fast, nobody should get the vaccination. Nor am I going to tell you everybody should get the vaccination. And maybe I'm wrong in my approach here, but my my take is 
I think people should weigh it out for themselves. If they are hesitant, that's okay. There are reasons. There are actually legitimate reasons to be hesitant. And part of it is, you know, well, are there, are there, is this really proven? Do we have a track record to see? Has the FDA approved it? Not that that means anything. I mean, sometimes they get things wrong, but just because a person says, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's the, the thing I want to do right now. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there's some troglodyte who, you know, would be outside. Uh, if they had a brain, they'd be outside playing with it. You got to be willing to question things. And by the way, the fact that, uh, you know, we have people at the highest levels of, of the federal government talking about, yeah, we'd like to send people door to door to talk to the unvaccinated, try to persuade them, you know, to get the shot. I don't know why, but that sends off warning signals in my brain. That makes me go, they are pushing this really hard. Why is that? Because I don't buy the idea that, oh my goodness, you know, this is because this is such a dangerous, dangerous disease and there's just dead bodies everywhere. Nope. Nope. The casualties for the most part have been very old people, very sick people, or very fat people. So I don't know. They're, they're, I'm not, I'm not a virus denier, but I'm not going to buy into this narrative that we have to do it this way or else. Back to uh, the article here from, again, Doug Casey. He's asked about politicians, bureaucrats, and the intelligence community. These are all obvious members of the ruling class that seek power and control. But he's asked, are the health experts new members of the political ruling class? That's a good question. And Doug Casey responds by saying, sickness and fear of death get the public's attention even more than sex and money. And for what it's worth, the virus has been prepped for decades by loads of sci-fi books and movies featuring a virus wiping out most of humanity. And not without cause. In fact, the chances are overwhelming that biological warfare will be a major element in any future conflict with China. Telling people that they're going to get sick and die endangering their loved ones is a powerful motivator to get them to do as they're told. Still, he says COVID is 90% hysteria. If someone is old, obese, or sick, they might want to isolate themselves, but it's insane to lock down the whole planet to unsuccessfully safeguard a few people in danger. And it's equally insane for everyone to take risky vaccines against a non-threat. Let the people who are worried risk getting the vaccine, although there seems to be some serious question about how efficacious the vaccine itself is. So then he's asked, where do you think this will all lead and what are the implications? Okay, now this is the part that's a little bit chilling because Doug Casey says, I think all this outsourcing of our thinking to experts is leading toward a many tentacled police state. And he says, the people who run the state have control of the money supply, the economy, the education system, and the media. And they've gotten control of the medical system. They're replacing traditional religion as well with what amounts to new secular religions. And that's an interesting twist. He says, Christianity is on its way out. It's already a dead duck in Europe and is hanging on in the U.S. only among the lower classes. The elite no longer believes in traditional religion. It's being replaced by updated versions of Marxism, which was always a secular religion, even though it claimed to be scientific like Greenism and Wokeism. The bad guys, by which he means statists and collectivists, have mounted a war on many fronts and they're succeeding mightily. 
He says they'll use the Greater Depression to create a genuine police state, a kinder, gentler version of the old USSR or East Germany, but with a higher standard of living and more TV channels. And he says the ruling class will blame the collapse of the economy on COVID. As the depression drags on, they'll also blame it on global warming and not their stupid economic policies. COVID and the global warming scam are wonderful do ex machina devices to allow the bad guys to dodge the blame for what's coming. Marxism, statism, and collectivism will once more evade the blame for the consequences of their idiotic economic ideas and evil ethical notions. And that's largely because critical thinking has vanished from the West. So I hope that doesn't come off as well. You know, let's just rail against this system and rail against that system and consider our work well done. Because there's something a little more important at stake than just simply, hey, let's uh, let's get a good rant going and, and see if we feel better afterwards. We've got to be the critical thinkers. And if that seems like, well, but I'm just, you know, I'm not the kind of person who really understands a lot of this stuff. It's okay. Everybody feels nervous about, uh, you know, diving in and trying to take ownership of their worldview. But it has to be done. And to, to start thinking like an expert means you've got to be willing to put in the time to really understand something. It shouldn't be that inter- intimidating. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, you really can't comment on something until you've gone out and earned a Ph.D., maybe several Ph.D.s in a related field. No. Let me tell you what it looks like. I'll give you an example because I had a good friend who did this. She and her family were very involved with 4-H. And as a result, you know, they were exposed to a number of different things that 4-H was involved in. And beekeeping came up as, uh, you know, potential thing that they could get involved in. So they were like, okay, they, they bought the bee suits. They got hives. They started keeping bees. And what started out as just a hobby and they started from not knowing anything about it. It's not like they were born with this knowledge of, of being an apiary. But in a very short time, like within a year or so of keeping bees and constantly learning and, and updating her information, my friend has become one of the recognized experts where she lives when it comes to bees. Meaning when, when for instance, someone finds a swarm of bees, they call her. And she knows what to do. She knows how to go in and find the queen and take care of the swarm and, you know, basically find a home for these bees instead of just killing them. That's pretty cool stuff. And it starts with simple things like this. And, you know, there's a, there's a book out there called How to Read a Book. I believe Mortimer J. Adler is the author of the book. He talks about different ways of reading a book. One of the ones that is most impactful, and this is particularly true, if you want to become more expert in your thinking, is what's called syntopical reading. So you take a particular topic. You could uh, you could do it on uh, you know do it on uh, precious metals or whatever. You find numerous sources about this subject, and then you compare, and you're doing as much writing as you are reading because you're taking notes, and what you're trying to do is compare these sources, see where they agree, see where they disagree, but the bottom line is you're actually contemplating stuff. You're contemplating, thinking, reasoning, comparing. Does that sound like work? Okay, because it is. 
Just so we're clear, this is not like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a breezy skateboard ride in the park. You know, it's just so, so much fun. It's actual work. You might even break a sweat as a result. But it's worth it. Because you start to order things in your own thinking. You start to to see how things come together. And more importantly, you learn the questions that you should be asking to get a more complete picture of what's going on. That sounds like a win-win. Plus, you get to own your own worldview, which is part of being a critical thinker as well. Stay with us. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a quick time out here and direct a special message to uh, any of my listeners within the state of Utah. A lot of folks are moving there. It's a really intense real estate market. And here's the bottom line. you uh, if you If you're one of the people who's moving to the Intermountain West, particularly in the state of Utah, you find a home that you are interested in. Okay, there's your dream home. You better have your financing in order right then because you cannot afford to hesitate. Homes disappear so quickly. I mean, bidding wars going on. Here's why I'm bringing this up. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George located at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2, have the experience, they have the knowledge, and the resources to help you quickly get the loan you need at the best rates possible. Decades of experience. Heather's been doing this a long time, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. She's there to help you. Her NMLS ID is 715-386. Her phone number is 435-703-4522. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and they are the ones you need to talk to. Again, this is particularly for my listeners in Utah. Talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, it's getting harder to keep track of all the politically correct things for which we are allegedly guilty. So here's a new one. If, you, if you've been feeling confident that, well, you know, I'm, I'm not on the wrong side of history. No, sir, not me. Well, here's one for you. Do you know we're no longer supposed to find some people more attractive than others? Oh, yeah. Robert Weisberg, in a piece published on intellectualtakeout.org, says, Lookism may be the next politically incorrect thing you are guilty of. Weisberg says the latest installment of our nation's utopian quest, lookism, is defined as the discriminatory treatment of people who are considered physically unattractive. Sorry, but this is relevant to my interest since I kind of fit that description. To be sure, beauty is always culturally defined and it's hard to quantify precisely. But in today's America, this reflects such traits as weight, facial symmetry, hair, clothing, grooming, and all else that define a person physically. Now, these traits are highly consequential for job opportunities, including promotions and pay raises, romantic relationships, and social benefits, such as having more friends and better sex. Good-looking people are also more apt to receive loans and, at lower interest rates, receive less severe criminal penalties than unattractive miscreants, and are more likely to be judged as friendly, intelligent, and competent than ugly people. 
Now, most people would probably conclude that this is just life and must be tolerated as inevitable. Not so fast. Weisberg says never underestimate the allure of bad ideas when pushed by devious radical egalitarians. When it comes to aggrandizing state power and making ever more people dependent on government largesse, radical egalitarians are a stealthy bunch. Their seemingly innocuous enterprises begin with announcing a problem that requires a solution only the government can provide. Initial solutions to a newly discovered tribulation invariably fail, however, so stronger measures become necessary. Despite repeated failures, the coercive mechanisms and increased dependency remain in place, mission accomplished, and on to the next invented problem. Now, the sin of lookism has been around for a while, but in a recent column by David Brooks in that harbinger of poxes, the New York Times, suggests that lookism is discrimination and bigotry, comparable to sexism, racism, homophobia, and similar horrors currently needing government intervention. Evil acknowledged, Brooks announced, the only solution is to shift the norms and practices. Gee, I wonder what that would look like. His example of reversing this prejudice is Victoria's Secret's recent marketing campaign featuring diverse body types. A few plump women together with a transgendered model. This physical diversity is the future, Brooks tells us, and in the fight against lookism, the rest of us have some catching up to do. Yes, Robert Weisberg says this now appears innocent, but recall when protecting transgendered rights was judged too bizarre, if not trivial, to fret over. So the call for adding lookism to the already overflowing catalog of traits that require government intervention is hardly a snap. Firms must already worry about discriminating against multiple racial and sexual minorities. Now their HR departments must formulate guidelines to ensure job applicants are not rejected because they're midgets, dress weirdly, or are unkempt. A nearly impossible task, to be sure, but such is the price of progress, at least according to the good-think sages of the New York Times. But far worse is how anti-lookism undermines personal agency, the idea that people, even short, ugly, stinky people, can control their lives. At its core... Personal agency is believing in free will versus having your life dictated by exterior forces, such as one's social class, race, and personal appearances. Needless to say, agency is the essence of a free society, and its subversion invites a lifetime of dependency on government. Now, an alternative to adding lookism to the list of victimhoods is to stress personal control over appearances. So not everyone can be a Vogue model or an Adonis. But there's no need to be grossly overweight, sloppily dressed, disdainful of personal hygiene, foul-mouthed, self-mutilated, with tattoos and piercings, or otherwise guaranteed to offend conventional sensibilities. Those who are victims of lookism can certainly avail themselves of cosmetics, shampoos, exercising, or even plastic surgery. Moreover, those at risk of suffering from this bias should recognize their condition is often a personal choice and thus hardly requires state rescue. Wearing filthy jeans to a job interview is an individual choice, and an employer who refuses to hire a slovenly worker should not be hauled before some bureaucrat and charged with discrimination. If you're free to dress like a slob, employers are free not to hire you. Making lookism an actionable offense invites the most extreme state overreach into personal behavior. There are no limits. 
The alleged victim can claim an almost infinite number of personal traits that were allegedly the source of bigotry. I had a beard or mustache. I had a purple mohawk. I dressed like a slut. I had gold teeth or my pants hung below my knees. There can be no defense when any personal trait might elicit a government investigation. Banning lookism is carte blanche to an ambitious functionary looking to build a discrimination-free utopia. Now we live in ironic times, says Robert Weisberg. The left seeks to reduce crime by defunding the police and decriminalizing minor infractions. Yet they happily invent new offenses, such as refusing to date a person who is overweight. It's hard to imagine a society where looting is tolerated, but who want to keep men out of a women's bathroom. Those who want to keep men out of the women's bathroom are called bigots. I agree. It's a pretty big inversion of reality. And by the way, I like he mentions the the looting that's tolerated. I don't know if you have been paying attention to what's happening in San Francisco, but it goes far beyond shoplifting. There's a great article here by Andrea Widberg. This is in the AmericanThinker.com, who says, We're hearing a lot about the overwhelming number of murders and attempted murders in Chicago and New York. But San Francisco has gone a different direction. It seems to have become the, quote, shoplifting capital of America. And she says this honor goes along with its long having been the capital of America for car break-ins. It's so bad that she goes, I, she says, I know suburbanites who refuse to drive in the city. Now, the latest shoplifting, again in quotation marks, video, is an impressive one. Showing a whole gang of thieves racing out of San Francisco's Neiman Marcus store on Union Square, clutching what appears to be thousands of dollars in handbags. And yes, she has the links right there in the article. She says, you'll notice I twice bracketed the word shoplifting in quotation marks. And she says, I did so because what you see in that video is not shoplifting as we've traditionally understood it. Old-fashioned shoplifting is when a person skulks through a store, slipping merchandise into into a clothes or into a bag, and then sneaks out, hoping not to be caught. But what's happening in San Francisco is something much more extreme. These guys are coming in. They're not even covering their faces. They just come in, knowing there's cameras, knowing there's people standing around, and they scoop up what they want and either run out or walk out with it. Pretty simple. Andrea Woodberg says stores can absorb traditional shoplifting. It's one of the costs of doing business. You know what they can't handle, though? An endless hemorrhage of thousands of dollars of merchandise. And the losses are endless because the state of California has essentially decriminalized theft if the property stolen is worth less than than $950. Meanwhile, San Francisco's district attorneys made it clear that he's in a war against not criminals, but the police. We've got to hit the pause button here because we are up against the break. But when we come back, let's talk about uh, what those policies have led to in California, at least for, for these retailers. I mean, I, I don't get a high from shopping. You know, my wife does every time she gets a good deal. I think she gets that endorphin release and can't blame her for liking it. But some people really enjoy being able to go to different stores and have those resources available. But when the authorities start treating theft like it ain't no thing, what incentive do these stores have to remain in business? We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My goal is never to make you angry or fearful, although it, uh, it may occasionally bump your blood pressure up just a couple of notches. That's, I'm the same way, though. When I hear stuff that uh, maybe isn't what I wanted to hear, yeah. But the idea here is we're going to see the world more clearly as it is. We're going to wield our influence wisely wherever we happen to be standing and find that, uh, you know, we're in control of our lives to a far greater extent than some have led us to believe. Now, I've been sharing an article here from Andrea Widberg from AmericanThinker.com about what's happening in San Francisco, how it goes far beyond shoplifting. You know, the California, uh, California's, the state of California has essentially decriminalized theft if the property stolen is worth, worth less than $950. Well, that'd make you feel real secure, wouldn't it? Right? <laughs> as long as everything we have is over $950, bucks, we can, we, if somebody tries to steal it, we can, you know, make sure that we're, we're seeing justice. Nope. So you have gangs of thieves now targeting stores, particularly in the Bay Area. And just cleaning out cosmetics, handbags, whatever it is, they, they know they can turn around and, and, you know, make a profit on. And thanks to California's policies, Walgreens has closed 17 stores in San Francisco because of shoplifting losses. Shoplifting again in quotation marks. Target is severely constricting its San Francisco stores hours to try to offset its losses. By the way, she says, I have no sympathy for Target which was woke about allowing mentally ill so-called transgender men in women's bathrooms and then groveled before BLM. So how much longer will high-end stores like Apple, which is routinely hit by smash-and-grab theft, or Neiman Marcus put up with this? Now, Andrea Woodbrook says, look, I'm not just being, I'm not being racist. I'm just being observant when I point out that whenever video footage emerges of this shoplifting, there's a strong likelihood that the actors will be black. And why not? She says blacks are being told that white people have stolen from them for centuries. Looting is a form of reparations. Moreover, in San Francisco, they know they'll likely escape punishment should they be caught. In other words, what they're doing is both righteous and safe. Yeah, their conduct is rational. But what's going to be rational to is retailers deciding to pull out of black neighborhoods, as well as the cities in which, outside the southeast, most blacks live as opposed to suburbs or rural areas. You can see where that's headed, right? It'll devastate black communities if they become retail deserts. Now, Andrea Whitberg says, as a native San Franciscan, although one who's very grateful not to live anywhere near it nowadays, she's been watching with deep sadness what's happening to her city. The Neiman Marcus theft especially bothered her, not because she shopped there, but it's because her memories of the city go back to a time where the space that Neiman Marcus now occupies was the city of Paris, a store that Frenchman Félix Verdier founded in 1850 during the gold rush. The first building was destroyed in the 06 earthquake. That's 1906. But when the second building from 1909, it, she says that was a beauty that survived until 1981 when Neiman Marcus demolished all but the lovely rotunda. Now, she says, I remember shopping in the city of Paris, and most especially, I remember the huge, gracious dressing rooms, which had large windows, allowing women to see clothes in natural light. To go from the city of Paris to Neiman Marcus, a step down in her estimation, to a third world level of crime, is like watching San Francisco die. So she says, what you need to remember is this. This is what leftists do. 
They destroy civility, order, graciousness, and functionality. In their quest for equity, they'd level everything. Eventually, except for the nomenclatura, the inner circle that always acquires power and usually unimaginable riches, everyone lives in decay, squalor, and despair. I'll have a link to this article. Again, this is from Andrea Widberg for AmericanThinker.com. All right, one final note here. How would you like to be able to see the future? I mean, if you could have a superpower, right, you'd want to be able to see what the future holds. Got a great article here from Isaac Morehouse. I picked this one up off everything-voluntary.com. How to see the future. Now, maybe not in the way that you're thinking, though. Isaac says, what technology that exists today has the ability to upend the way things are done a decade from now? His point is the ability to identify this is correlated with the ability to predict the future. Now, a lot of people attempt to predict the future by going to the edge of technology and imagine changes brought by inventions that don't yet exist. Once AI is able to do X, it will change Y in the following ways. Those kinds of predictions are very unlikely to be accurate because there are just simply too many variables. He says, instead, find technologies that actually exist and work well today, but very few people realize or use them yet. Not because of a fundamental limitation of the tech, but because the knowledge of it and human skill able to use it aren't yet widespread. Then he says, if you eliminate the biggest variables around the if, when, and how of the new tech, then you can focus on the implications and industries affected. Now he says there are other act- there are other factors rather beyond just technology like trends, norms, beliefs, politics, and culture, but those are also more variable and less able to be pinned on a timeline than technology. They affect each other, but he says new tech, if it makes people's lives easier, is very hard to bet against over a long enough time horizon. People want more for less. Once they've tasted it, they want more of it, and to sell it and take it to its limit. And he says, any tech that can do more with less is highly likely to shape the future, and cultural narratives tend to bend around it. So it's easy to assume any useful tech in existence is already being fully exploited. This is the theoretical economist trap. If you understand and appreciate the power of markets and human self-interest, it can be hard to understand just how unevenly capital and knowledge are distributed at times, at all times, actually, and how much room for innovation always exists. Now, we're not just talking tech innovation, but business model innovation that can deploy existing tech that's underutilized. And he says there's tons of this around us all the time. Tech that works wonders, but is in deceptive mode, relegated to small circles of hobbyists or weird applications that underexploit its potential. In fact, he says, I think Bitcoin fits into this category. Bitcoin, as it was invented and released to the public over a decade ago, does a few things that have staggering potential. The ability to attach monetary value to the transfer of information and to do so at levels as small as one one thousandth of a penny instantly and globally is incredibly massive. To do this with no trusted third party or single data repository is even more massive. And this is all possible right now, today, with no need for any new inventions. Yet hardly anyone knows it. Instead, most people imagine a future for Bitcoin where it becomes gold, then currency, but only if something new gets invented. 
Most people think Bitcoin can't operate at scale and can't handle tiny payments. They're trying to predict the future based on stuff that still needs to be invented. Too many variables to be accurate. That's because what's known as Bitcoin, BTC, stripped out all the functions Bitcoin was designed with that let it scale and handle tiny payments instantly. So Bitcoin has to try to solve that all over again and hasn't yet. Meanwhile, what Bitcoin originally was is still operational and working today. It's under the ticker BSV and almost nobody realizes how well it works. And those who have heard of it hate it for personal, cultural and political reasons. Right now, today, it's doing transactions instantly and globally for thousands of pennies as it was designed to do. Nothing new needs to be invented for it to work. Now, whether BSV or something else like it, uh, the cat is out of the bag. Isaac Morehouse says current tech right now today can do this. This means the best way to predict the future is to imagine what instant global monetary transactions tied to bits of information from thousands of a penny to billions of dollars means. Think through every industry and application. Consider what's not possible today that makes that this makes possible. Sure, he says, some current businesses will get more efficient, but the real power of prediction comes from finding things that are literally impossible without this tech that only become possible with it. For instance, an entirely new model for the Internet could emerge. Problems with information age, with the information age currently being solved in frustrating, ham-fisted ways, free use, sell user data, trusted third parties, etc., could be solved in straightforward, efficient ways. Bottom line, Isaac Morehouse says the tech is here. The knowledge and skill and application is not. And so he asks, in 10 years, what will be built on it? That's how to see the future. I realize it could be a little bit abstract for some, but I really like uh, I like Isaac Morehouse's take on things. The dude is knowledgeable. He's very, very positive. And more often than not, uh, he seems to be right. Even so, I'm not going to outsource my thinking to him. I'm just, you know, grateful for, for what he contributes to my understanding. I'll still own my worldview. Thank you very much. And I'd encourage you to do the same. This is The Brian Hyde Show.